faces shake it face screwed up like this is Sandy Clough and Chandro Tar on Mile High Sports And as we continue, Sandy Clough, Sean Rotar, you just heard uh, Sean reporting from Las Vegas uh, through his conversation with Mike Smith, the former head coach of the Atlanta Falcons. More from Sean later on in this hour. You're listening, of course, to Mile High Sports, 98.1 FM, 107.5 HD3. You can watch us at milehighsports.com slash watch or listen at milehighsports.com slash listen. We're also available via the Mile High Sports app. And our executive producer is the great Danny Bailey. You can call or text us at 303-831-1340. And we are pleased to be joined uh, at this point, I believe. Uh, we may have to wait a second to reestablish the connection. Uh, Kyle Fredrickson will be set to join us uh, from the Gazette. Uh, we trust here in uh, just a second. As the uh, avalanche misadventures continue, um, Last night in uh, New Jersey, at the start of this road trip, the Avalanche have not looked anything like the team that played in the lead-up to the All-Star break a couple of weeks ago, uh, losing to the Rangers 2-1 in overtime on Monday night at Madison Square Garden, a game the Avs led with uh, about 10 minutes to go in the game, one to nothing. And then last night in New Jersey, a bit of a reversal, although uh, a pattern we've seen before from the Avalanche, who won eight games, went down after two periods this year, and it looked like they might make it nine last night. They were down 3-1 in the third, came back to tie 3-3 within the course of a minute on goals by McCarr and Girard, but uh, the Devils struck late, added an empty net goal, and came away with a 5-3 regulation win, leaving the Avalanche uh, uh, looking ahead to Carolina and trying to capture their first win on this road trip Thursday night. Kyle Fredrickson has uh, joined us now uh, from the Gazette. Uh, You were watching last night. Jared Bednar, after the game, said uh, for the most part, the Avalanche were chasing the game. Do you agree with that assessment? Yeah, I would. And this is a team that, as you mentioned, is, you know, no stranger to, to making comeback wins and, you know, being in the Prudential Center last night when the Avs rattled off those quick back-to-back goals with Makar and Gerard, It really did feel like, all right, here's the team that we remember before the break. They're capable of, of scoring in bunches and, and really flexing that power. Uh, but at the end of the day, it was too many mistakes. It was missed opportunities. Um, and like Jared said, just sort of chasing the game in a way where the Avalanche aren't the ones kind of dominating puck possession and, and making you feel like, like they're the aggressor. And, and maybe some of that's rust. It's a long break from playing. Um, but certainly, uh, you know, they, they really need to start playing better hockey at some point during this road trip. And I guess uh, that could explain some of it. Uh, Edmonton looked very, very, very rusty last night in uh, losing their winning streak at 16 games. Uh, to the Las Vegas Golden Knights. But uh, on Monday night, I I, I could understand that. Uh, only four teams played on Monday night. And, uh, you know, the, the, the Avalanche lost in Madison Square Garden to the Rangers. Uh, still got a point. It was an overtime loss. It's certainly no disgrace. Uh, the goaltending was superb. Uh, McKinnon was great. Uh, last night, not 
uh, as good an effort. At least I didn't think so. And uh, we'll get maybe to some of the reasons for that uh, in a moment. But uh, McKinnon lost his point streak last night. (laughs) Same night the Oilers lost their 16-game winning streak. Uh, But uh, I thought uh, McKinnon played well. uh, And maybe uh, one of the key points of the game was right before the Devils scored what proved to be the game-winning goal. McKinnon had a breakaway chance, which he skated right around Hughes, right? Just left right. him standing in his tracks just about. Yeah, yeah. Certainly opportunities for, for the Avs to take control in that game. And, yeah, with McKinnon, it's, 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 you know, pretty amazing. I think this is just the second time in maybe 34 or 35 games exactly. now that he hasn't gotten exactly. a point in the game. So it's hard to be too nitpicky with him, but it is a good reminder that, you know, it, it's not fair to really expect McKinnon to carry this team on a nightly basis right. and when they don't have all of that depth scoring or depth contributions. It just makes it a lot tougher. It was nice to see Sam Girard uh, get a goal. I think it was the first. I thought he played uh, well. Yeah. yeah, he's he's kind of grown back into a, a point where, you know, it's harder for Avalanche fans uh, to demand that he gets traded, um, and, and they need that depth. Uh, but, yeah, you know, just in terms of how this team approached this, this past game, it shows you uh, that there's some concerns there because part of the narrative was, you know, hey, Ryan Johansson, he's the second-line center now. Let's see how he plays uh, with Arturi Lekkonen and Zach Parise. But by the third period, you know, that line – He hardly was, played. Yeah, that Johansson. line got flipped. Right, yeah. exactly. And, and that third line, which had been the second line for so long uh, with Ross Colton and, and those guys, you know, they all of a sudden get a more prominent role. So, yes, the, the team wants uh, Johansson and, and that line to develop. But when it comes down to it, when they need goals and, and they need guys they can trust, um, you know, last night shows us that the abs, you know, the, they're not as deep as maybe they'd hoped they were. Yes. And uh, Johansson's a big part of that. We were talking earlier about uh, six players, five of whom I named, who are uh, regular players and yet minus players for the Avalanche. I intentionally did not mention one of those six players because I wanted to ask you about him, and you kind of gave me a pathway a moment ago when you referenced Sam Girard perhaps no longer being the defenseman that everybody wants to trade. I'm not saying that the label belongs exactly attached to Bo Byram. But when you talk about disappointments on defense, isn't it more so Bo Byram, at least so far this year, than it's been Sam Girard? I would say so, absolutely. And, you know, and notwithstanding Girard, you know, needing some time in the NHL assistance program, and it's great that he got that help. But, yeah, even even Byram would admit that, you know, the first half of this season – hasn't gone as, as planned for him, and it just seems like he's the guy on this team who's making those uncharacteristic mistakes. Yes. He's, you know, he's, he's sending the puck out of play on, on kind of random spots or, or, or not winning puck battles and, and, and creating offense like, like we've seen him do at times because he really, I think, has that elite skill set to, to create, you know, in, in terms of being a great skater and a, and a very good passer. But, yeah, it's, it's going to be interesting to see how this develops with, with Bo Byram and his ice time, how often the Avalanche are going to want to bring Sam Malinsky back into the lineup. It, it seems like him and, 
and Jack Johnson are, are sort of rotating out of that final defenseman yeah. spot, just kind of de- depending on who the abs are playing. Yes, and um, a less physical game last night. So sure, Malinsky sure. played and it was Johnson the night before. But, I'm, I'm t- you know, you, you have the figures uh, on ice time. Last night, the only defenseman out of the six who played less than Byram did was, in fact, Malinsky. Gerard, Manson, obviously Taves and McCarr, all played more. And actually, other than Manson, who just played a few more seconds than Byram did, the others played a lot more than Bo Byram yeah. played. Right. And, and that's a great indication of, of trust on the roster right now. And, um, you know, it, it, I do appreciate Bo owning up to it and, you know, and, and telling us, hey, I've, I've got to be better. But until we see results, it, it makes me think that maybe he's the expendable piece here still yes. as, as this team tries to figure out ways to, to bolster its lineup. I, I think second-line center is going to be a little bit harder at this point to, yeah. to find a yeah. guy out there who's going to be a true difference maker. But looking at the backup goalie market and, and everything else that the Avs yeah. uh, you know, might consider, um, that is one piece right now that I do think is movable just based on that and how well Sam Malinsky has played. You know, it seems yes. like uh, we're, we're, we're talking much more about him after games than, than we are, uh, you know, Bo Byram, and that's just, you know, proof of, of how both of those guys are playing right now. You keep leading me into these questions that I intended <laughs> I to ask, but uh, on the subject of the backup goaltender, uh, Ananen played last night. Uh, Bednar was uh, on the bench uh, in the second period uh, during one of the breaks, speaking with uh, the ESPN uh, reporter um, and saying that at least the first two goals, he really couldn't fall to Ennanen on. But again, for a second game, he gave up four. Your opinion, did he do well enough last night to get another start on this road trip? Or is the next backup goaltender who plays going to be someone other than Ananen, maybe Prozvatov, who was sent to the minors the other day. Do they bring him back up? Or at this point, is making a trade in the next few days and weeks an imperative uh, for this team that Ananen has shown in two games? He hasn't been terrible, but he he certainly hasn't been the best goaltender on the eye. It wasn't last night. He was by far the inferior goaltender last night. Sure. And, you know, I, I do sort of feel for Ananen in that it's almost like the Avs aren't really willing to give him any sort of leash as a backup goalie. Every time he's come in, it's been for maybe one or two games. You know, even Prospetev, uh earlier in the season, you know, he, he was getting sort of a very consistent run as, as Georgiev's backup, albeit, you know, when Alexander's leading the league and, and starts and appearances, um, that shows you how much the Avs are leaning on him and, and also how much maybe they don't believe that they have a true backup. You know, I will say one of the more interesting things that came out of this road trip uh, and talking with Jared Bednar uh, in the scrum before the Rangers game, um, you know, of course, Georgiev's workload came up and yes. it comes up a lot. And, and Bednar sort of, you know, gave a take that was surprising in the moment he sort of leaned on the, oh, well, back in my day, you know, goalies played 60, well, 70 games a year. And, and listen, no I, I, and I, I'm older than Jared Bednar. <laughs> I like Jared Bednar enormously. I think he's a tremendous coach. I'm a lot older than he is. And National <laughs> Hockey League teams, really back in the day, when I started following hockey, there were six teams. 
and they right. didn't even play 75 games back <laughs> right. then. Uh, it, there was no goaltender. I mean, Glenn Hall in the 50s played in 502 straight games. And it, that that's wow. that, that's yeah. better than Cal Ripken's record. In, in right. my view, that's nobody wild. will ever, uh, no goaltender ever played 502 <laughs> straight games again. So I I get kind of what he's talking about. And I remember Patrick Waugh never wanted to miss a game. Right. And that wasn't all that long ago. But to think that he's going to play close to 70 games this year. I mean, that's ridiculous. He played 62 last year and I thought he looked gassed in the playoffs. Right, right. And and it was it was interesting cuz you know, Jared is I I consider him more of a modern coach, right? Players love him, he's embraced analytics. But to me it, this felt a little bit like a smoke screen. Yeah, because, I thought so you know, too. Yeah, you know, he, he wants so to take he wants to take pressure off of Gorgiev. He wants to show that hey, I I truly trust this guy. But the idea that he is so talented, you know, that that he's one of these guys who's a flagship goaltender, your 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 Shesterkins. I just yeah, I just don't think he's he's shown enough to really prove that. So Jared might be right. And I do think that, you know, it, it there's a double standard for players on the roster where, you know, skaters want to play eighty two games. It's important right. to them. You know, they don't feel like they have to get that mental break. Um, you know, maybe goalie is such more of a mental position they just need that. But I think it's more of just what's been successful in, in more recent years. And when that 60-40 split yes. has been kind of the norm yes. over the past decade, you're just going to see teams, you know, go to that model. So for, for everything that, you know, Jared is saying publicly now, which is great, you know, he's standing up for his guys. He wants Georgiev to know that he right. trusts him. Right. Um, I don't think that's realistic. And I do think that it's very likely the abs will, will go out and, and, and try to find a guy out there who, who you know, wants a fresh start, a, a backup in the league. Um, you know, who's already a little bit proven. So I imagine that list is, is pretty long. I think Fleury is the, the one name that everyone looks at. Absolutely. Because of just the, the shine and then the, and the history there of, of, of what he's done in this league. Um, but I do think that the Avalanche will have options. And, you know, I think that's, that's more than what they can say uh, in terms of figuring out how to place, uh, replace Ryan Johansson right now. We'll end on more of an upbeat note. Uh, we, we need to remind ourselves, or at least I need to remind myself, that at least in terms of points, the Avalanche are tied for first place sure, in sure. a pretty good division right now. I mean, the, the, the top three teams uh, in this division are all at 65 points or better, and there's no other division that can say that uh, out of the other three in the National Hockey League at the moment. And, yes, since uh, Devon Taves uh, went on what I thought was an entirely justifiable rant, if you can call it that, in Chicago 50 days ago, back on December 19th, the Avs are 13-4-2, including an overtime loss and a regulation loss on this road trip. So the sky isn't exactly falling, is it? No, no, not at all. And, you know, I don't sense any of that panic or frustration yet, really, from from Jared or the players, of course they they want to be winning games out of the break and, and feeling good about themselves. But it's not as though they're they've been collapsing in these couple games. And there are some positive developments. I think one of the the more underappreciated storylines from last night was just how physical Arturi Lekkinen looked. Um, you know, he, he looked better last night, especially in the third period when he got put right. up with the. Uh... 
the big boys, McKinnon exactly. and Ratman. Exactly. So, yeah, it's great to see him back and, right. and playing like the same type of player, right? Because after a neck injury, you just sort of wonder kind of how long it takes for a guy to feel normal or, or sort of exactly. you know, being embracing contact. So that was great. You know, we'll see, uh, you know, once they come back from the trip, we'll probably get another update on, on Val Nichushkin's status. It's, it's obviously totally up in the air right now. But, I mean, with him back in the lineup, it would just, you know, really make everyone feel better. Uh, even out the lines a little bit. Uh, he just does so many things that no one else on this team can do. So, so yeah, I think as, as we move through February here, uh, some tough games, this road trip, I mean, you know, forget even being on the road, just the, the quality of opponent that the Avs are getting and, and the Hurricanes and the Panthers and the Lightning coming up. Uh, a good litmus test, but, you know, you, you really hope uh, just for their own psyche that they're able to, you know, pull, pull a few wins out of this trip before sure. going back home. Sure, and uh, it won't get a lot easier in Carolina. Of course, they have uh, uh, a couple of games uh, in in Florida uh, along the way, and uh, uh, so uh, uh, it's it's a long, tough trip coming out of the uh, All Star break. But uh, at least they have uh, tonight off before they uh, take on a third game in four nights. Uh, tomorrow night against the Hurricanes. Kyle, our thanks as always. Really appreciate it. Yep, thank you. There he goes, Kyle Fredrickson of the Gazette, reporting on uh, the Avalanche as he regularly does on the beat uh, throughout the course of the season. And uh, when we come back, uh, speaking of interesting stories uh, and big games, last night up in Fort Collins, Perhaps the biggest game and the closest to a must-win game that Colorado State has played in years with legitimate NCAA tournament hopes. The Rams had to win last night against Boise State, the first-place team, even after losing to Colorado State last night. A major test for the Rams, who passed with fine colors. We'll tell you how next here on Mile High Sports. Sandy Clough and Chandro Tar, presented by Superbook Sports. Download the Superbook app and start winning today at Superbook.com. Here's Sean and Sandy. This has been an unusual year here locally when it comes to major college basketball. Certainly CU and especially CSU in the thick of things as far as their standing within their respective leagues, CU out of the Pac-12 and CSU attached, of course, to uh, the Mountain West Conference, which is a terrific basketball conference uh, this year. And, of course, DU playing out of the Summit League, and uh, that's a one-bid league. Uh, uh, the automatic qualifiers, the tournament champions, so the regular season games uh, for DU don't mean quite as much. CSU is a different story. Regular season games mean a lot because the Mountain West Conference is so strong. And even with five bids, boy, uh, you look at the standings. 
at the moment. And there are seven teams with winning conference records and, of course, winning overall records. And that doesn't even include the University of Wyoming with a Mountain West Conference record of 5-5. Five and five. A dramatic come-from-behind win in the final seconds and on into overtime over CSU recently. Wyoming's 5-5, five and 12-11 five, and 11 overall, and they are not anywhere near a point at which they could be seriously considered as a possibility for the NCAA basketball tournament. Unless they win the Mountain West Conference tournament, Wyoming won't be going to the big dance in March. But UNLV is 5-4 and four in the league. Nevada's 5-4. and four. CSU now 6-4. and four. And there are four teams who are all 7-3 in the league. Boise State, New Mexico, San Diego State, Utah State, 1-4. through four. Utah State dropped the game this week and moved from first to fourth. That's how tight things are in the Mountain West at the moment. So CSU, having lost already this year at Boise State, had to beat the Broncos at home last night. Had to win in Fort Collins. They're undefeated in conference play at home. They've only lost one game at home all year. They're 12-1 now. And they won last night very impressively. Never really threatened, although Boise State kept it close here and there. CSU emerged with a 75-62 win. Uh, They have, uh, uh, including the game last night, three of four games at home now. Bench scoring, defense, foul shooting contributed last night uh, for CSU. 17 out of 19 at the free throw line to only 11 of 17 for Boise State. Uh, The Rams shot 56.3% from the field to 41% for Boise State. Uh, Even outshot them uh, from the three-point line, four for 15 for the Rams, five for 20 for the Broncos. And uh, the only area in which uh, uh, Boise State seemed to have the advantages on the boards, 10-4 on the offensive boards, but CSU had more than three times as many assists, 22 assists, 11 turnovers, to seven assists and eight turnovers for uh, Boise State. It was uh, a vintage performance for uh, Nico Medved's crew uh, last night, and uh, Isaiah Stevens was just tremendous, 16 points, three rebounds, and 11 assists. So the double-double for Stevens uh, in his fifth year uh, up in Fort Collins playing for the Rams. Uh, Scott and uh, Cartier and uh, Clifford were all excellent. Uh, Scott had 13, Cartier 10, and Clifford 7.6 rebounds, four assists, a block shot uh, in Uh, helping in some of the key moments. But uh, the bench scoring, look at the gap uh, for Colorado State, 23 points off the bench and uh, less than 10 points off the bench for Boise State. Uh, Tremendous all-around effort. And by winning, CSU for the moment moves into sole possession of fifth place in the Mountain West. Five teams are projected from the Mountain West to be in the NCAA tournament, according to Joe Lenardi's bracketology column uh, earlier this week. 
the five teams from the Mountain West right now would be, according to Lenardi, San Diego State, Utah State, CSU, New Mexico, and Boise State. Now, remember, Boise State and New Mexico are one and two in the Mountain West, right? Of those five teams, the two lowest-seeded teams are New Mexico and Boise State at eight and nine. CSU was a seven. They won last night, so they certainly wouldn't become an eight seed or a nine seed, right? They they at least hold their ground, even if they didn't move up a notch to become a six seed. The Mountain West has a fifth seed projected right now. That would be San Diego State, a six seed in Utah State, a seven seed in CSU, an eight seed in New Mexico, and a nine seed in Boise State. That's a pretty good conference. Remember, San Diego State was in the championship game last year. So people knew even last year how good the Mountain West was, and it's even better this year. And again, according to the projections, the Mountain West would get as many teams into the tournament as the Big East, which has UConn, the number one team in the country. And historically, a basketball conference. Absolutely. Not, not Absolutely. necessarily that way and with I'm the And I'm not West. saying the Big East is what it was in the 1980s, but you've got UConn and Marquette, who were both ranked in the top 10 this week. You've got Creighton, that was ranked eighth in the country when CSU beat them earlier this year. You've got Seton Hall and Butler as teams that might be right on the fringe of entry into the tournament. Uh, But in the ACC, they've only got four teams projected to make it. Those four being North Carolina, which lost last night at home to Clemson. They tried to come back. When we saw them here, they were down quite a bit. They were down 14 when we saw them in the first half here. And North Carolina rallied in the second half, but Clemson... of those teams that's kind of on the edge uh, as an eight seed projected earlier this week. They might be better than that after beating North Carolina uh, in Chapel Hill. But uh, the four teams would, of course, be North Carolina, which had a one seed, maybe not anymore. Uh, Duke, a number three seed projected. And Virginia, a red-hot team that's challenging for first place now even more closely after North Carolina lost last night. But UVA is projected only, uh, or was earlier this week, as a 10 seed. And Clemson, as we mentioned, uh, an 8 seed. Only three teams from the Pac-12 are picked at the moment. Colorado is one of the first four out. The first team out is St. John's out of the Big East. The second team out uh, would be Cincinnati out of the Big 12. Cincinnati's a pretty good team, but Cincinnati's in the Big 12. So they're taking a pounding. Uh, This is their first year in the Big 12, uh, much as it is Houston's first year in the Big 12. And the Big 12 will expand again next year with uh, teams added, including the University of Colorado, as we all know. But you've got St. John's first out, 
Cincinnati, second team out. CU, third team out. And Wake Forest out of the ACC would be the fourth team out. And the next four out are Memphis, Villanova, Providence, and Oregon out of the Pac-12. Oregon was in first place two weeks ago, maybe even 10 days ago. Um, in the Pac-12, they're not even close to being in the tournament based on their overall record. The three Pac-12 teams right now would be Arizona projected as a two-seed, Utah as an eight-seed, and Washington State barely making it as an 11. We've talked about it. CU has to beat Arizona State tomorrow night. That goes without saying. They play Arizona on Saturday. It's an 8 p.m. start up in Boulder. And Colorado has to have that game. Having already established that it's going to be tough for Colorado to win on the road. This year, they won one game on the road this year. And that was against a team in Washington that's not very good. Good news for the Buffs is they're undefeated at home. And, yes, most importantly, undefeated in the conference at home. And they've had success at home against Arizona. They haven't had success on the road, but they've had success at home against Arizona. If CU hopes to be in the tournament, they have to get not just Arizona State tomorrow night. They have to get Arizona on Saturday night. And that is the game of the year. At least as important to CU as Last night's game in Fort Collins was to Colorado State, getting past uh, Boise State and solidifying their place in the tournament. Wouldn't it be great to get at least two of the three teams here locally, and I don't mean to slight Air Force, but uh, Air Force is in a very tough basketball conference, and uh, it's, it's tough for teams like Air Force, San Jose State, Fresno State in particular, uh, to win, even if they're playing well in a conference uh, that is so strong. And it's close to a balanced conference as there is. So it'd be great to get two teams in. I think Colorado State is going to make it. I think CU has to beat Arizona. But if CU beats Arizona and can steal just one game on the road, stay clean at home, steal one more game on the road, and win a game, maybe two, in the conference tournament, I think they'll get in as an at-large team, even if they don't win the tournament. I'm not sure the Pac-12 will get four teams, though. So CU, which had a chance fairly recently, if they had been able to beat Washington State on the road, and that was, what, last weekend? Is that last weekend? I believe it was, I did yep. that they were They won at Washington. And they played Washington State and lost. I think all these games are running together. Uh, January they, 27th. All right. It was a few weeks back. If they had won that game on that particular occasion, they would have been in first place in a Pac-12 at that point. And right now, they're not in a bad position, and it would really be helpful to them if they're able to knock off Arizona on 
Saturday night. So uh, we'll continue to talk about that. The women are doing well. The women bounced back last weekend very nicely and uh, solidified their position well inside the top 10 in uh, major women's college basketball. Uh, as, as good a team as uh, CU has ever had uh, up in Boulder, uh, maybe including the men, the women's team this year might be the best basketball team uh, that relative to the competition, of course, that CU has uh, uh, ever put on the floor. All right. Yeah, I don't think the men's team has spent a ton uh, of time inside the top five. Uh, and no. the women's team has been no. there all year. They've been there most all the year. They, I think, slipped to six uh, recently, but they did get back in there with uh, uh, a few more wins, get back well inside the top five. They were number three, I think, at one point. That was the, the high point. They were ranked third. And they're, they're definitely a Final Four uh, contender this year. They're, they are that good. All right, when we come back, we go back to Las Vegas, and uh, Sean Drochar has a chance to visit with one of my favorite people. I, I've uh, read her stuff for years. I think she is as good a reporter as there is, and I'm not qualifying that, but in this case, Judy Batista formerly of the New York Times, works for NFL media now, but she is anything but an apologist for the National Football League, a rare thing in journalism today. The great Judy Batista joins Sean Rotar next from Las Vegas on Mile High Sports Radio. This is Sandy Clough and Chandro Tar on Mile High Sports. Welcome back to Sandy and Sean. I'm Sean Drotar, live from Radio Row in Las Vegas, Super Bowl 58, joined by NFL Media. And I say media because you can find her on NFL Network Television. And, of course, you can read her on NFL.com. Judy Batista, Judy, a pleasure to, to have you. I've read you for a really long time, and uh, it's really a treat to be able to, to talk with you today. Thanks you, you had a story on, on NFL.com about something that I think a lot of people have not really realized in the Super Bowl. And, you know, as we get closer, some of these sort of things start to sort themselves out. You know, if, if the 49ers were to win, you're talking about a father and a son head coaching teams to Super Bowls. Of course, we're, we're located in Denver. That would be a big story. Christian McCaffrey, local Colorado a kid as well. So a big story there. But as, as you pointed out, the odds on that, at least in our relatively small sample size, are not great because there have been four times in which Super Bowl coaches within a five-year span have faced off against each other, and each of the previous three times, the person who won the first one won the second one. Right. Kyle Shanahan probably does not want to think too much about that. Um, it's probably When you step back, it's probably not that surprising because in the previous three instances, it wasn't just the head coaches that were the same, but the quarterbacks were also the same. Yes. So the bones of the teams were essentially the same. But to do the story, like I wanted to talk to as many people as possible about like what are the dynamics of like how do you prepare for the rematch? Does do, do you even mention that it's a rematch? Do you even think about it as a rematch? And I thought the answers were really interesting because they were sort of all over the place. Like Joe Green basically said, like Chuck Knoll changed nothing. Like Chuck Knoll's philosophy was, we're going to do what we do. We're better. 
And if we do what we do, we should be fine. Like we shouldn't even worry about what they're going to do. And then of course there's others who say like, you know, everything is game plan specific. Literally every game is a change. Um, but, you know, it was just really interesting, like to, you know, to hear, especially the players, I thought like, you know, Troy Aikman said like, um, they played the Buffalo Bills in back-to-back years. So that was the right. truest rematch, right? I mean, that was really a rematch. And they had played in the regular season in between those two games. Um, and he said, like, you know, obviously it's the same play callers. Like, you're, so the tendencies are the same, even if you have different personnel here and there. Like, if you've got the same offensive play caller, the offense is going to look the same, no matter who's executing it. And I think that probably goes a long way to explaining why it's, you know, the winner of the first wins the second. Too. But, but you do bring up that coach quarterback combination, Chuck Knoll and Terry Bradshaw, right. uh, Jimmy Johnson and Troy Aikman, the other Tom Coughlin and Eli Manning. And uh, this is the different one. Yes. Uh, right. Except you have Andy Reid and Patrick Mahomes. Now, Andy Reid, uh, the, the fourth at this point now, the uh, the fourth winningest coach in history, which I, I think that snuck up on a lot of people. He's behind, right. uh, you know, only uh, – Shula and um, and Landry and, and Belichick. And so that's been a good pairing. Mahomes obviously has been a great pairing. Mahomes has never finished a season any earlier than the AFC championship game. So that's almost ludicrous. But but I went back and looked at that, that rematch from four years ago. Out of the players that touched the ball on offense for both teams, six remain. On the okay. Chiefs side, Mahomes, Kelsey, McCole Hardman, who, by the way, doesn't really play doesn't now, really and four right. years ago had two touches for negative four yards, but at least he's still in the mix. Uh, Debo Samuel, George Kittle, of course, and Kyle Juszczyk, who's now somewhat known because is significant other making fantastic right. jackets for Brittany awesome. Mahomes and Taylor Swift. So uh, off you go. But it, it does seem that even though we're talking about those pairings, the guys around it changed. You know, the, the way the free agency yes. alters teams – it's a rematch, but only on some sort of superficial levels in many ways. I think especially for the 49ers, because it's a different quarterback, obviously. Brandon Ayuk, who's one of their most dynamic weapons, was also not on the team. So, and neither and, was McCaffrey. And neither was McCaffrey, obviously. So they, that feels the most different. To me, The you know, yes, I, we spent all season talking about that the weapons had changed on the Chiefs and were not as good, other than Kelsey, um, and were not as good, and that the offense was struggling and of course the X factor is Mahomes, right? Like that chiefs team sort of reminds me of some of the years with the Patriots dynasty where the offense didn't look great and they didn't have great weapons. And Brady was sort of having to hold it together with duct tape and then they would get into the playoffs and off they would go. Right. Right. Like that's sort of what the chiefs look like right now. They, the defense carried them along the way while the offense figured it out. And then all of a sudden Patrick Mahomes, you know, dropped the hammer and off they went. Um, it, there's no question. I think the 49ers are a fundamentally different team than the one that lost to the chiefs, uh, the first go around. And, you know, one thing Troy Aikman, who has called a lot of their games said to me is Kyle clearly has a quarterback. He trusts now in a way that he simply did not trust Jimmy Garoppolo. He trusts Brock Purdy. And I mean, that is a big difference, especially to the play caller, right? Like if yeah. you have complete confidence in that quarterback, you are calling the game differently. Yeah, it's a luxury that Andy Reid has had for, for right. many years, right. and now Kyle Shanahan has that. And the idea that the Purdy is a game manager isn't entirely accurate. When you look at his average depth of target and downfield, he actually pushes the ball downfield as much as anybody. But it does feel like the point you brought about Kansas City is fascinating because it feels like at halftime of that Bills game, <laughs> you know, that the Chiefs started out, offense was good. And the offense kind of tapered off in, in that second, but Buffalo then made it shift, and it's that halftime adjustment. And Kansas City's defense shifted around a little bit. 
uh, brought some pressure from different angles, different different uh, perspectives, and the Bills couldn't handle it. And since then, they, when they went and played the Ravens, it's just like Boom. they put the pedal to the metal from the first play. This is what we're doing. These odd sort of angles. We had an opportunity uh, to talk earlier today with uh, with Mike Smith, uh, mm-hmm. former Falcons coach, and he said that's Steve Spagnuolo defense. Right. He's only rushing four guys. Question is, which four? What is he doing? Right. (laughs) Right. Well, Spags, who, you know, was the defensive coordinator for the first Giants Super Bowl over the Patriots. Um, I I mean, this is what he does, right? Like he uh, and and look, that defense held the the Chiefs together for most of the season. This was as vulnerable as that team has looked offensively since Mahomes got there. That offense was struggling. You saw games that were nationally televised games where Patrick looked angrier and more frustrated than you've ever seen him look right like slamming his helmet down stuff you just never saw screaming at officials never saw him look like that and that was the accumulation of all of the drop passes and the stupid penalty like how many times were they penalized for lining up offside just dumb and the defense is what held them together until the offense like finally figured it out and like Rashi Rice the rookie started getting going and then obviously Kelsey who did not do much all season and Kelsey got going um and it's Spags that, that that held it together. Like he is the MVP of the chief season. When we're about out here in Denver and you're watching Sean Payton now come into his second season, Payton with the, the year off then comes into Denver, uh, does not hit it off with Russell Wilson. You talk about screaming on the sideline. A lot of uh, obvious frustration with Wilson. Wilson's not coming back. The Broncos are hedging their bets and saying, oh, we haven't decided. They long since decided. When you bench Russell Wilson, right. he ain't coming back. So we know that's the case. But now in a league in which you talk, we've talked about these coaches and quarterback pairings, Sean Payton is trying to find a quarterback that he trusts. He tends also to even more than some coaches to bring in guys he's worked with before. He did this with Denver already. I look at it and I, I've told people in Denver, I will be surprised if Jameis Winston is not signed to the Denver Broncos because that's the last quarterback right. that at least uh, Payton had some confidence in before Winston got hurt. And I suspect given the financial availability, I think, Winston will be on the Denver Broncos. The question will be, will the Broncos go and swing big for a rookie? Peyton has never, in fact, his entire career, 275 games. He started a rookie quarterback in one of them. That's an ever. amazing stuff. So amazing. he himself says, uh, you know, that basically confidence is, is basically demonstrated ability. He's never demonstrated the ability to coach a rookie quarterback. If you're the Broncos and you're Broncos fans and you're looking for some hope and some optimism in the offseason, where do you look? Well, I think you have to have um, faith that Sean Payton knows what he's doing. Look, he came in and he inherited a team that was not of his design. Right. Did not have his quarterback. He hadn't handpicked that quarterback. So now you've got to let Sean Payton go to work and get his guys, whoever they are, his guys in place and and really put his stamp. Like, I feel like when you come in in the first season, can you change the culture? Yes. Obviously, you know, you can you can be more demanding as he is. You can be more um, detail oriented as he is. That's fine. But, but you got to let him get the personnel that he likes and that the personnel he feels can run what he wants to run. And so that's what you have to cling to. If you're a Broncos fan that you got Sean Payton knows how to do this. He has done this in the past. You got to give him some time to get his guys in there. How much do time do you think that is, especially when they're still hunting for a quarterback? Well, I mean, the key element is what quarterback is right. going to get, and is that the right bet? But that's the right. That's the same question. The thirty other, yeah, thirty one other team. I mean, exactly. if you're not Andy Reid and Patrick Mahomes, like, and maybe you know Josh Allen, and I mean, like, that's every other team is asking right. the same question. Like, do you have the right pairing? You got to trust that he can get the right guys. 
from that, obviously, as the season goes they pick 12th in the upcoming draft as it stands right now. Obviously, they may have the opportunity to, to move down. I don't know if moving up is in the cards because they've already traded away all their picks for either Russell Wilson or Sean Payton or who knows what. So we will see. But the Super Bowl will happen this weekend. It's a great fit here in Las Vegas. Delighted to be talking to Judy Batista. What's the, your your schedule this week has to be bonkers. Bonkers. Uh, yeah. Um, at, when we're done here, I'm going to do something for NFL Films, and then I'm going to go uh, lock myself in my hotel room because I have to write another story. So that's tonight. Um, but yeah, it's just, I mean, just like Las Vegas, it's like constant, constant, constant. Yeah, it's a fit in that regard for sure. Appreciate you carving out some time to talk to us back here in Denver. Oh, sure. Appreciate it. Make sure you give Judy a follow on social, Judy Batista. That's B-A-T-T-I-S-T-A on Twitter and check out everything she puts together, NFL.com. And when you're watching NFL Network, you get to see and hear the voice you just heard. So, Judy, appreciate it. Thanks so much. Thanks for having And, of course, that was the great Judy Batista from NFL Media alongside Sean Rotar, who will be joining us again during the course of our program tomorrow. We uh, thank all of our guests, including Sean and uh, Nate Lundy, and, of course, Kyle Fredrickson from uh, the Gazette, uh, Mike Smith, the ex-head coach of the Atlanta Falcons, and Judy Batista from uh, NFL Media. We've enjoyed it today, and we hope you have, too. want to give you a quick reminder about Dr. Rick Perea, who will be uh, uh, back in town on uh, Sunday to watch the Super Bowl. And it's always a treat for me to get the chance to watch a game with Dr. Perea, one of the foremost performance psychologists in America who's worked extensively with players, coaches, administrators. Uh, I would imagine an owner or two along the way uh, in the National Football League. But here locally, we get our checkup from the neck up on Wellness Wednesdays Every week, and Dr. Perea, of course, comes at us uh, as the former psychologist of the world champion Denver Broncos back in 2015. Shortly thereafter, during a pretty good Rockies run, he was working with the Colorado Rockies as well and the current world champions of the NBA, the Denver Nuggets. But most importantly, Dr. P helps middle and high school performers to reach peak levels of performance. Whether you're an everyday performer at work, at play, or at school, call Dr. P today at 720-287-0933. That's 720-287-0933. Or look them up at Dr. P at think1number4u.org. That's think1for u.org. That's our program for today. We'll see you in about 22 hours right back here on Mile High Sports. Our thanks to uh, Danny Bailey on the other side of the glass. Have a safe and enjoyable Wednesday night.